0: The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ari webinars. The Role of Government During a Health Crisis with Ankar Gatte and Greg Salmieri. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, a free video series from the Ayn Rand Institute where we talk about important ideas and events of the day, applying Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. I'm Paul Taske, a junior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, and I'm joined today by two philosophers, Ankar Ghatay and Greg Salmeri, as we discuss the role of government in managing a healthcare crisis. Greg, Ankar, thanks for joining. Hi, Paul. Hi. So maybe one of the things we should do, um, first I'll end the PowerPoint so we can all see each other. is um, maybe we could say a little bit of context setting at the very beginning to just talk about the coronavirus and how, it's, how, our, how what we're seeing has evolved over the course of the last few days and over the few weeks. And maybe we could talk just a bit about how we view the virus itself.
1: I did it last time. We, so this is we were here last week. Uh, talking about, obviously, the
0: same
2: issue. Uh, yeah. So, Greg, you want to start? Yeah, well, the so first, it's a really serious uh, virus, and it's a serious uh, health health concern. I have um, a lot of friends and family in, in medicine, and they are absolutely seeing this. Um, not only ER uh, doctors in New York, who I know who are overloaded with cases, but my wife's a radiologist. She's you know, in the other room doing diagnoses, mostly uh, from patients in New Jersey. And these are coming up, uh, you know, chest scans, and you can see the virus there. Uh, a friend who's a, a doctor in Pittsburgh has several cases of it that he's overseeing. And they're bad. It's not just, even apart from the issue of the the spread rate, this is not just another flu. It's much more deadly. Its onset is Uh, It goes from stable to much worse very quickly. And um, all the doctors who've encountered it that I know are very concerned about it when they have patients with it. It's a big deal. And it's a big deal uh, in another respect now because of its contagion. It's especially contagious because there's not immunity to it in the population as there is with flus, with other colds, with other things we have. So the fact that everybody is basically susceptible to it means one, that everybody's at risk, but also that it can get to more people quickly. If only half the people were susceptible to it, then only half the people would be pathways by which it would be able to reach still further people. But since everybody is, it's able to move really quickly. And that's why we're seeing these kinds of exponential uh, growth curves. And the real risk of that is um, not just how many people will get it uh, ultimately and will die from it, but how quickly they will, and that that will uh, overwhelm hospital capacity, leading to uh, one, there not being enough uh, staff, and particularly ventilators, to treat people who have the illness, and also that the hospital will be so overwhelmed dealing, even if it can treat all the people with the illness, uh, that it won't be able to do all the other things hospitals need to do all the time to uh, keep people uh, safe, both in emergencies uh, the emergency treatment you may need, but also the non-emergency treatment you may need that prevents there from being an emergency later. All of that gets put on hold when the hospital is uh, is, is um, overworked. And indeed, all of a lot of our lives uh, are put on hold by these um, lockdowns and even lockdowns, things that are not governmentally mandated lockdowns, but people deciding uh, often prudently that they need to not be at work, they need to close down certain um businesses and and whatever, um, all of those businesses produce things that maybe aren't urgently needed uh, but are needed to live and be happy over time. And um, it's, you know, I think really radically impacting all of our lives. And as far as I can tell, we'll be doing so for quite some time into the future. So it's a real uh, problem and it should not be minimized. So as we
0: as we look at the seriousness of this pandemic, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what government plans to do, what they are currently doing. And so I thought it would be helpful first to distinguish between the proper role of government, especially as Ayn Rand conceived of it, but then also to d- then discuss potentially any differences or whether or not the role of government is the same in a crisis situation like we're experiencing today. Um...
1: So I would, uh, I'll say a couple things about this, Um, that, so I agree with Greg that this is a serious situation and part of the reason it's so serious now as it was downplayed before from it's a hoax to it's nothing much to it's the flu and that has led to that we're behind, we're ill-prepared. But in a lot of the talk now, and I think in part because we're so ill-prepared is that we're in a state of war. And I don't think that's the way to think about this. So the the government, and you take the US conception of government, the government's instituted among men to secure and protect our rights. And we need a, a strong government. That doesn't mean a huge government, but you need a strong government that is really there to secure and to protect your rights. And if we were literally in a state of war, now as, as an analogy, you can think of it like that, and I think doctors bat, they'll think of it as we're battling the virus. Uh, it's a race to develop a vaccine. So you can think of it like that, but it's not, we don't literally have a virus that's trying to kill us. Um, it's not like an enemy. It's not, and and that matters a lot that, that that's not what we're facing. And even if we, and we, I'm sure we will talk about this, of how to think of infectious disease and the fact that people can be carrying it and pass it on to others, how to think about that. But there are, again, if it's your fellow citizens coming back from countries, or have now contracted it, or it's other people in the country, they're not trying to kill you. Um, so in thinking, so there's not, in a time, in a real time of war, if you're facing an enemy that is trying to Deprive you of your rights, eliminate your government, and take your freedoms away. What the government response has to be in that context, or what the government response would be to the Japanese when in World War II, and it, and I think that it was right to think the Japanese would have wanted to conquer us and take our freedom away. That's one kind of, and that's not what we're in now. And so I find that when it's put it like we need to be on a war footing. So it. I find that kind of talk when taking literally about how the government should be thinking about this dangerous. Um, Because you're in a existential threat when it's you're facing a foreign power that is trying to deprive you of your government uh, and it's going to replace your government. Um, So in this context, it's it's what we're dealing with is a a serious health uh, crisis that I think given what the government response has been or the lack of the response has been, where now you can think of it, we're in a state of emergency and it's real that the healthcare system is being overwhelmed um, and that it's it's past It's not like a funding crisis or something like that. It's there. And I was hearing about hospitals just this morning in, in California, thinking of shutting down because they're running because they've had to focus on this. They're not doing the other things. There's no revenue coming in. They can't afford to buy the supplies, pay the people and so on. And we're talking about like a whole hospitals are disabled. If not, something's not done, we're gonna shut down. So, so this is, we're in a, this is quite a predicament, but how to think about it is, I don't think you think of it as an issue of we're at war um, and, and therefore the government can do X, Y, and Z. But we are in an emergency. And that has real implications for how to think about what the government's response would be. I'll just say one other thing. One of the frightening things I find about this whole um, crisis is there is such a thing as biological attacks. This isn't one, and there's no evidence that this was engineered and and that this is an attack, but there is such a possibility and this, indicates that we're so woefully unprepared for that and that should if we're thinking longer term about this kind of issue that should be a major issue that if it uh, i haven't can't figure out why the army hasn't been brought in in various ways earlier in regard to this and it it indicates that we're not very prepared if this were a biological attack and that is longer term that is frightening too I
2: Ankar, when you talk about the army being brought in, could you make clear what, what role you envision for it?
1: Well, just on the whole medical, now they're starting to have medical ships and so on, but it's like stockpiles of ventilators, of masks and so on. Don't we have this for a biological attack? And couldn't you make use of that in this case when it's not a biological attack, but it's a pandemic that, and we're behind in preparing for it? So like, and it's a real question. Don't we have this? And when you talk to some of the experts in the field, they thought, well, we thought we have it, so we can't figure out if they're not being released or we really don't have these things. So, and that level of uncertainty at, at, in terms of government reaction, I find frightening.
2: Yeah, so we should talk about this government's particular reaction. I want to say a little bit about the general issue of what's government's role in general and then how does it relate to a pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of talk. You see these articles um, that I always want to take uh, Ayn Rand as a, a punching bag and a symbol of a, as a certain straw man, where there shouldn't be a government and everything the government do, does is wrong, etc. On her view and on mine, government has an essential role to play in life. And what government does is make social existence possible by extracting force from it. So it's a positive contribution to life to extract force, to make it the case that people are not interacting with one another by, in effect, attacking and and, uh, exerting force on one another. And in order to get force out of human interactions, in order to make it the case that all the interactions in a society are voluntary, right, we need to um, come up with systems to put the use of force where it's actually needed, because it sometimes is, under objective control under the control of a system that has rules that are fair that everybody understands them, that everybody is treated equally by them and that everybody has equal access uh to the the uh force when it's uh when it's proper and the obvious and clear-cut cases of that are military invasion if somebody's going to attack you and more uh more you know more typically in day-to-day criminal cases so you don't retaliate against somebody who you think has wronged you by you going out and fighting with him as a vigilante or on some kind of vendetta. Instead, you go through the proper channels and there's due process and so forth. But the another kind of case in which um, you find yourself under force from people, often unwittingly, is if they have an infectious disease And it's spreading and you're afraid that they're coming near you will uh will cause you to get the disease and so it would be reasonable if you think somebody's about to infect you with something that can kill or harm you to to forcibly try to keep them away if you had no other recourse and it's part of the job of the government to um make it such that there are objective uh, rules and systems by which people aren't in the position of trying to exercise that kind of force on their own. And there are all kinds of ways in which it does this. One crucial and principal one is the respecting of property rights. So if you own property, you can be on your property and other people can't be there breathing and coughing all over you, and you can go on to uh, property, you know, you can deal with people in pri- private context. The more of the world is private, owned by particular people who set the rules for it, and you can enter into agreements with them about how their land is used and what role you have on it, the more you are not at the mercy of whoever wants to come and cough or breathe on you. Um, but there are cases where um, either things there's unowned land or things are, are publicly owned, which I don't think they should be, but in this case they are, uh, or where things can pass from one person's property to another in various ways. And when there are infectious disease threats that are like this, uh, it's up to the government to have, be the mechanism through which these ways in which people might reasonably be afraid of each other and have something to fear from each other are addressed and adjudicated, rather than it being uh, a free for all. And so I think government does really have a role in the case of infectious disease, uh, in epidemics, pandemics, and we can talk more about what the specific role is. It's gonna depend a lot on the state of technology and how um, how much is known and understood about the, the diseases and about other things in the, the state of other things in the society, exactly what a government should do. But it has a role in, um, and the goal should be to create a situation where people are free to live by their own choice, including Choice of what risks to expose themselves and not, insofar as that's possible.
1: Um, I'll just on the issue of infectious disease. It's some of the complications in regard to this. If it were, if it were easy to identify a person, oh yeah, oh he's carrying the disease, and so private property, I can tell him to keep away, and so that is. That's one kind of context and it's easy to avoid, but in a context and when, I mean, that's part of the current context, but it's not unique to today's context, that you can identify that the person you're gonna interact with, he might not even be coughing and yet he's still carrying the disease and spreading it. Uh, How do you do this kind of interaction um, and make sure that, well, the person's not spreading the disease to someone who's like, if I knew you had the disease, I wouldn't deal with you. Um, but he doesn't know, and the, and the person carrying it might not even know. And yet, from the wider context, you know, well, a lot of people are carrying this. And this is something that you really have to think about how to do this. And there's no simple answer. There's answers, but it's not a simple answer. So there, it's neither an answer, well, anyone carrying an infectious disease has to be quarantined, um, nor that government can never quarantine. And so you have to think about the specific circumstances of what, and as I agree completely with Greg, it depends on all the particulars, the current state of technology, what kind of interventions are possible, how long a quarantine would have to be, and so to decide whether it rises to the level of a government response is
2: warranted or not. And and which government response is warranted? Because um, at least, at the very least, the following kind of government response is warranted. It has to provide some clarity on um, what the limits of individuals' rights are. Do I have the right to leave my house? If I do leave my house, do you have the right to, you know, pull a pistol on me and tell me to go back in or, or what, right? We don't, um, we at least need to know who, what rights do is like, to tell you what's up to whom. Yeah. And government has to be clear on, on that. And... That means it has to be – since these issues are all issues of requiring expertise in the the details of the particular diseases, how can you catch it, how dangerous is it if you catch it, how does it relate to various background risks that we all go about assuming every day. Um, Some some infectious diseases are, you know, in effect noise uh, in the risks that we're all accustomed to, and others, including this one, are not noise like that, right? So how do you tell which ones are which? Um, that all requires medical experts and people who are not just medical experts, but there's a, a field of expertise of integrating knowledge about medicine, knowledge about society, economics, the effects of these kind of diseases as they spread, and political theory. And you need people, which neither Ankhorn nor I are, uh, you need people, and there aren't many of them in the world, unfortunately, who are experts in that kind of thing to think, philosophically about it, it it's a, um, this is a, a kind of thing that requires um, integration of knowledge and expertise across different fields. And that is one reason the, the lack of people who can do that, integrating, uh, and do it from different political and philosophical perspectives and, and argue it out with them. And the lack of us having had conversations about this over the past decades, is part of why the world as a whole, and America in particular, is caught short in this case. So there are a couple of different directions I think we could take this, but the,
0: you know, one of the next things I think would be interesting for people to, to wrestle with is taking a step back and how to think about issues of aging and, and just living your life generally, and then the standard of life, standard uh, quality of life issues that arise uh, due to this virus, could you maybe say a few words about what you, what you think about those types of issues in a society, like Um, life, death, aging?
1: I mean, I'll say one thing about them. I know Greg wants to say some things about this as well, that, that when you think about it from an individual perspective, so you're putting it as a society, but I think you should start with the individual and how you think about this and um, and if you were talking about an individual in a free society, this he would have to think a lot about this, that, that I have a life, um, and it, what I want to do is to live it. And what that means to me, what am I trying to do? It's one very deep and important formulation that Ayn Rand gives about in thinking of in morally about your life. It, it's in Atlas Shrugged. It's, it's not death that we wish to avoid. It's life that we wish to live. So, and that's the goal. So it's not, oh my God, I might die. Everything is subordinate to that. That's the main concern. I'm trying to avoid that. It's, I want to live a life. There's, uh, peop- there's things I want to create. There's people I want to engage with, um, live with, share time with. And I, it's a, uh, it's a, I mean, it's sometimes put it as it's a project. of This is what I'm creating through the years that I have to me. And you have to think about that as um, what is the role of physical health in this? And it plays a huge role. It's hard to really pursue and enjoy your life if you don't have physical health, which is why people really value it. But it's one of a constellation of values that make up their life. And you have to think what, how much time I'm spending on this, how much money I'm spending on this, how I'm preparing for my old age, what kind of old age I want, and what kind... I would think it's possible to me that if it's that you have a real history of Alzheimer's, you might, and I, I mean, I know people who do it, it's, you front load activities more because, and I'm gonna spend my money now, I'm not gonna save so much for retirement because I'm, I'm expecting not to be able to enjoy my life in retirement or it's gonna be cut short and so, and you really have to think about these things and plan your life and plan, and, and including, it's thinking of how you spend your money. Like for, for me, for instance, there's the, the idea, and I've, I mean, I've seen this now as I'm getting older, um, and, and you have parents and friends of parents and so on. The idea that like I'm gonna spend all my money for three more months in life when it's life in a hospital bed with tubes in me. And so on, that has no interest to me. Um, and I, I mean, I know many old people that has. And in a free society, you would have to think about all these issues, take responsibility for them, and pay for them. And the more that the healthcare system is collectivized, which means it's run by the government, and the government is making this kind of decision for each and every individual, and is trying to, well, we can talk about how it Tries to make that kind of decision, but that it's taking that responsibility for your own life and the power and control you have over your own life. Um, that's a major issue. And whether you're in a state of crisis now, and the healthcare system's being overwhelmed, the idea that that power is taken away from you should be um, a major concern. And if it's you want to live in freedom, you want to have this kind of control and responsibility over your own life and planning it.
2: There was an article that came out a few years ago, uh, people can probably find it online, by Rahm Emanuel, who is one of the physicians, I think he's a physician, that was involved in the uh, planning uh, of Obamacare, he was an advisor to to Obama, or the ACA, as it's properly called, uh, and it was not a political, at least not overtly a political article, it was, although it was widely perceived, and I think properly perceived as having political undertones, but it was about his own personal medical decisions. And he was talking about why he doesn't want any medical interventions uh, past the very minimal ones after he's 75. His view is if once I'm 75, you know, I mean, if I get a fever, I'll take Tylenol. If I have pain, I'll take painkillers, but I'm not gonna do anything further to try to extend my life. Uh, I don't think it's worth it. Um, I think the odds that I'll end up, you know, if I do that 85, but unable to do anything for myself in a miserable state or higher. And I just, this is my personal choice I'm making for me and my family. Now, the reason why this thing got a lot of pushback politically, and I think should have is because this is a guy who is, uh, defending and pushing for further and further socialization of medicine in America. And, you know, you're thinking there's the idea of death panels if people get old on socialized medicine, which there are, although it's, it's um, seen as right-wing and crazy to say it, right? But there are the equivalents of that. Uh, and this was seen as a trial balloon where we should just let old people die. Um, but if you take it not as that, and you take it as, like, this is the guy's personal preference, it's a, a pretty reasonable thing. And in a state of political freedom, right, Different people would be thinking, because we don't have freedom in medical care. We have socialized medicine in America for everybody over 65 and mostly half socialized for the rest of us. But in a state of political freedom, right? people would make these kinds of decisions. What kind of healthcare do I want when I'm older? What kind don't I, how, and they would factor into it how much it costs and what else they could do in their life with that money. And you might choose a less expensive insurance policy when you're younger, that would um, not cover you if you're over 75 for certain things or whatever, or a more expensive one because you have very different preferences from Emmanuel. Emanuel. In countries where medicine is more socialized, I was talking to friends uh, who are from the Netherlands just yesterday, uh, people are um, more and more forced into uh, those kind of decisions. That is, they're forced into the kind of preferences that Emmanuel has, where they don't do much for you when you're older and they let you die. Um, Some people might prefer that, but that ought to be the kind of thing that's up to you. And if you imagine a free medical care system, not free that it's all paid for, but free in that you're free to make your own medical decisions, including about how to finance them over your life, you would um, think about, there'd be less issues of rationing of care when people are older. There'd be more, particularly this, we have a disease that's affecting elderly people. A lot of them would have decided they wouldn't want to be on ventilators if they're over 75 uh, to begin with. Now, that's not to say that, you know, what we should do about the situation now, and it's not to say that it's not a tragedy and a horror when tons of people are being infected with a disease quickly that could kill them or land them on ventilators, and it doesn't help us get out of the ventilator shortage now, but it does give, help us understand some of the causes that lead to these kind of systems and lead to them being so difficult to deal with. People are asking, what should we do about this now? And I think, um, that uh, part of what we have to do is acknowledge that we're in a crisis now and then think about why we're there, but then what can you do about it? Well, you need more actual medical expertise and expertise about things like how quickly can a ventilator be produced and um, shipped from one place to another, and is it likely that the peak need in ventilators at Different in different cities, is gonna happen at the same time or will it be possible to move them around? You really need subject matter expertise to decide on that. Um, As to the issues of social distancing, staying at home, um, staying at home, we'll have to get to that in a minute. People are are telling me, I see on the chat, that I was mistaken in saying it was Rahm Emanuel, it was uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, I guess, his brother, uh, or a relative of his who wrote this piece. But anyway, it's an interesting piece something like why I don't want to live past 75, you could look it up online.
1: Um, I want to say a couple of things about what we should be doing now and particularly what we as citizens should be demanding from the government. And I think the two crucial things are the testing. So the testing has been a fiasco, but as far as I can figure out, But one of the issues is we don't have the data. It's not presented by the government. What is the actual state of testing now? So how many tests can they do? What are the criteria for who is being tested? Uh, And why Why are are they doing it in this kind of way? I've read a number of articles that the experts feel like they're flying blind. And I feel like we're flying blind that we don't have this data. And you can't make any rational decisions without the actual data. And there's a lot of models floating around about what the death rates will be, what the loads on the hospitals will be, so how much will they be overwhelmed, for what period of time. And I've looked at some of the models and what is going into the assumptions. And so many of the numbers depend on what are the total amount of cases Even if they know the cases that are in the hospital, so the serious cases, what are the total amount of cases, even let's say in New York state, some real estimate of total number of cases, the percent that require hospitalization, the percent of those that go and need ICU and the percent of those that need ventilators. And we don't have the data, but you would also know what percent hasn't been exposed to it what percent has and is over it. And so there might be herd immunity. And, so, and there's not this data. And it's, as citizens, we should want this data. And it should be, it's the obligation of the government to say what it's doing, including we don't have the data because testing is still a total mess. But you would want the experts to have this data and not just the particular experts the government's consulting, but the others who might have a different view, who might think the data indicates something else and that they can weigh in in this argument in the conversation. If you don't have the data, you can't make rational decisions. So I still think it's sort of looked at as, well, we missed the boat on testing. We didn't do what South Korea or Taiwan did, which is testing early on. It's still not obvious to me that testing isn't a major, major uh, priority to get this data. And then the other thing is, to ramp up hospitals. So Greg was bringing up ventilators. But overall, that if it's really, the concern is the hospital system or the healthcare system, but it's primarily hospitals, is going to be overwhelmed. What are all the steps being done to make that capacity as great as possible? Um, and, And being frank again, that it's, we're having trouble ramming up, or no, we're not. We're going to be able to do this in a week, it's, or we're, there's shortages in this area. So, and that inform the more that information was out, the more everybody could respond, including companies saying, "Well, I could produce that, or I could make that, or we could, in a week, change to our factories to do this and so." But the the opacity of what is happening is that, that I don't think a government can do this. A free government, that is, a government of a free society can't do this.
2: That is, it, it can't make quick moves with, without clarity about its rationale and what it knows about it. And in the, in the case of testing, um, I think there's a really strong argument that at this point the government should be buying tons and tons of tests and ordering them. I mean, it's running the healthcare system. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it needs to do that, but it's worse than that. That's not happening. It's that there are still restrictions on tests. And there are tests that are, are known to work. Maybe they're not quite as accurate as some ideal test would be, but that people aren't allowed to produce them, aren't allowed to sell them. The FDA is meddling in these kinds of things. If the government is not ramping up testing as quickly as it should, people who want to go their own way with it should be allowed to. And uh, we are not, uh, we're not doing that. And people are asking online, who should be tested? Ultimately, everybody should be tested, or everybody who wants to be at least. Uh, if there's an inability to create tests fast enough, then there's an argument for, you know, healthcare workers should be tested first, people at high risk should be tested first, and, and so forth. But ultimately, it should be possible to make tests like this for everyone. It might take some months to do it. And then there were different types of tests. There were tests of, uh, of the um, mucus in your, your nose and so forth, in the back of your throat, that test whether you have active virus, and there's uh, serology tests of your blood that tests whether you've been exposed to the virus at all. Um, and uh, those are useful because uh, if you don't have active, uh, if you're not active with the virus, but you've been exposed to it, then presumably you're immune. And um, so there's no danger to others, uh, or to you for that matter, in your going about your, your business and interacting with people. So I'd love to get both of your thoughts
0: on other aspects, the government might get involved in whether they should. You've mentioned that government should, you know, ramp up testing, they should be transparent in what they're doing, but government's also proposing a lot of other, other ways to get involved by, you know, softening the economic blow to people by uh, giving cash back or, or suspending interest rates or lowering interest rates and all these things. And I, I know none of us are economists, but should government be trying to get involved to help people through this emergency? In, in those other ways beyond just trying to get them healthy again.
1: Um, so I think you need to take a step back because if it is, if you thought that it's right that um, this disease, that both, so sort of the combination of the, how easily this disease is spread, the mortality rate of it uh, or fatality rate of it is really high and there's no immunity, so it will uh, spread throughout most of the population, then it's, it, in that kind of context, you're thinking, well, you need a lockdown. Um, but this is again, it's, there's so many assumptions in that, that the more data you had, the more you can make an informed decision. About and I think what we've seen in part of the go is minimizing, downplaying it, evading it, and then an overreaction when they don't have data. So, but if you lock down everyone, there's an argument that it's yeah, this is going to destroy people's lives, their businesses, and well, the government has to do something in response to that to try to help out. So, How to think about that? Yeah, there's a lot of complicated issues and there's a lot of complicated economic issues. But notice that we didn't try um, earlier um, measures in the way that some of the other countries have done because they've had testing and much more testing, more data. If you look at South Korea, if you look at Singapore, now there's a lot of differences. Singapore is a city state, it's different than the united states of america and its a vast geographical location and all kinds of differences but they didn't close schools for instance in singapore um, so you would, you, I, you have to step back and ask what should the response have been and i don't so I, I know some of the counter arguments to this but i don't think there was serious thought to what you have to lock down is the people who are vulnerable and not like it's, a, it's the most drastic thing you can do to lock down the economy, to put that it is really, really difficult for some people to work and impossible for other people to work because they can't work remotely. It can't be just put online. Um, I mean, it's amazing how much can still happen even when people can't go to places of business and so on. But for many businesses, it's, they're coming to an end. And the cascade of that, people don't. I I think there's a sort of tech mentality. It's like I put my iPad to sleep, and I can pick it up a month from now, and it will run like it run. And the idea that an economy works like that, it is it. Um, it's much more. There's in in Atlas Shrugged. There's a story about an economy disintegrating, and when one, it's like dominoes falling. It's vastly interconnected. It's very hard to know, well, if this goes down, how does that affect eight other companies and eight other industries? And they can't function now. And so the idea that you can just hit a pause button, and we're sort of on pause for two months, and then we're going to play again, that's a fan. That's a complete fantasy. Um, And that has to be part of the decision-making in regards to this.
2: there it's a it's a, a due to a failure of testing and um, that we are having to or, or feeling we have to but we might have to in certain areas I think we do have to shut down the whole you know people can't move basically uh, for a period of time if, if we had better testing we could have avoided that Um, And we knew enough to know that this could happen and we could have avoided it and I think we knew enough um, At least it's coming out more and more what the government knew I think it was known in January and this could have been avoided uh, if the federal government had taken the right steps in January rather than uh, Going through a kind of pretense and panic cycle, which is what's happened And I think now the closing down of everything I I fear is the same kind of pretense and panic cycle so there's the um, claim that, well, we have to do whatever we can to save lives to stop the hospitals from becoming overloaded. Uh, And it's horrible if they do become overloaded. But we're not, I think, thinking really seriously about what are the consequences long term to the economy if we do this, not just for a week or two, which are bad enough, but for months, for a year, for rolling periods of three months. Um, People see it as some people are prioritizing business and some people are prioritizing lives. But it's very un, um, very short-range thinking to try to separate those two like that. We don't know what the effects on lives long-term will be of uh, closing down these businesses. And it, it's um, if they can't start again, the, the mental health effects of people who can't get out, all the different um, uh, effects long-range of if we plunge ourselves into a depression or something worse than a depression, if we create... Uh, political instability by doing this, which could well happen. These are things that can really, even if you're just measuring by life's loss, particularly life years lost, that could well be worse than the worst estimates of the lives lost from this pandemic, which are, uh, in America, about two million, which is horrifying. Uh, it's about doubling the death toll, a little less than that, uh, from a given year. Um, but if you think of it as... Um, What were the effects on longevity of the, what are the effects of that specifically on longevity and the effects on longevity of the Great Depression? And then if you think about the political effects of the Great Depression, which included the giving rise to totalitarian totalitarian governments rising up and getting more power all over the world, um, the rise of communism for half centuries, and if you think about the kind of cascades there, it's really horrible. Does that mean we shouldn't be uh, closing down any place? Um, I think for short periods, some cities might need to be, Um, but it really has to be about uh, clarity about what we're shutting down for with what end, not we're shutting down for two weeks and then we'll see. What will we see in two weeks? Uh, Are we gonna, is it that we're testing as much as we can over the course of the two weeks, and this is what we know and these are the kind of criteria we're gonna have after the two weeks, and everybody can know that and think about it? Is it we're closing down for two weeks to formulate a plan uh, because it'll take two weeks to formulate a plan, uh, but we, don't want the, the, we want the curve to be as flat as possible during the planning. That's less good, but at least that's something. But if you look at these press conferences that we're getting with Trump, um, and I think it's similar with the Cuomo ones we're getting in New York, it's very clear they don't have much of a plan and don't know what they're doing, and they don't know what they're waiting for. And that is bad and frightening, and... Um, the government is in a way not doing enough now. What they're not doing enough is figuring out, uh, crafting a policy that has an exit strategy from this. And so they're doing certain things a lot, keeping everybody pressured down, which I think would be happening anyway in a lot of places. Um, But what we need is a course out of this. And presumably the course out of this involves massive ramping up of testing and contact tracing and trying to replicate the the South Korean model, insofar as possible for us to do, belatedly. That's you know a very non-expert opinion, but from the newspapers and from the epidemiologists I spoke I've spoken to, uh, seems to be what uh, what we need to do. And um, what that means is, you know, you you test people aggressively when you find someone who has it, you find all the people they've been in close contact with recently, and then you test them. And um, we're not really doing that. Um, that is what enabled South Korea to proceed uh, quickly and get this under control without shutting down even schools. And uh, I think that uh, we need to see how we can get to where we can do something as close to that as possible. And it might be different in different areas of the country. It might be too late for that in New York, but, uh, you know, fine in, you know, uh, uh, um, Atlanta or something. So, you know, we just have to see
0: there's a lot there in in the answers you both just gave. Um, I, I wanna kind of abstract away from some of those particulars and just ask a broader question about, government is going to make certain choices. Should they ever be in the position to weigh the lives of some of their citizens against others?
1: Um, I think it, that only arises in a state of war, which is one of the reasons and one of the many reasons that I don't like the um, the comparison to that we're an actual state of war. In a state, I mean a state of war, it's a horrible state to be in. It's the if one of if not the most momentous decision a government makes that we're going to war. And in that context, when you think of what happens. I mean, I think of in World War II, the evasion of some of the Japanese islands or uh, landing troops in on continental Europe. The first ones you're sending in, you know the casualty rate for that is going to be enormous. And for other people who you are sending on different missions and so on, it is, you're, you're playing with life and death. And that is what a government is doing in actual Warfare And it has to do that. It has to make these kinds of decisions for the army. It's part of, if you have a volunteer army, it's part of what you sign, you know, you sign up for it and you know that this is how decisions are being made. And they have real and, I mean, I think harrowing decisions to make in regard to this kind of issue when you're actually at war. But when it's, um, when it, if this is a domestic situation, No, I do not think there is, it's not the government's prerogative to be thinking about the citizens and it's, we weigh their lives, these people, we weigh the lives of old people more important than young people or young people more important than old people, not in a free society. It happens, um, what, what, I mean, we refer to the present as a mixed economy. And in a mixed economy, this kind of decision making happens all the time, but it's, it's who, are, it's who are we sacrificing to whom? Social security, basically, is it bleeds young people of today to give money to old people in the hope that when these young people get old, there's going to be young people to bleed to give money to them. It's presented as an investment, but that's not what it is. And it's why you get then a whole block of old people who try to protect their social security and view young people that they're at odds with each other. And so you can, there is this all kinds of conflict in a mixed economy where the government is making an effect, it might not say it is, but it's making this kind of decision about old people count more than young people or young people count more than old people or the unemployed count more than the employed. But a real government that, takes seriously the Declaration of Independence, or a real proper government, that thinks we're here to protect the rights of every citizen. It's every citizen as an individual. And in that sense, it can't weigh that one is more important than the other. We're here to protect everyone's rights equally. And in that context, there's no issue about, we've got to balance competing things. No, what we're trying to do is secure everybody's
2: rights. But part of what's necessary for that is the government being active about these things. So it's not just that it doesn't violate people's rights or it doesn't make these decisions. It creates laws, legal systems, courts, um, ways of adjudicating rights and so forth that enable people to free people from one another such that they don't have tragedies of the commons like situations where one person has to be sacrificed for another for people to take responsibility for their own lives and to be able to make their own decisions about what to do in times of crisis and so forth, um, people need to be able to separate themselves from one another and and have their decisions impact their lives and not others to the greatest extent possible. And that's not something that happens automatically unless the government interferes with it. It's something that requires good governance to, to make happen and when we have failures of that kind of government either because we have governments doing the wrong thing or not doing some of the right things that they need to be doing, we end up in, um, in these kinds of uh, situations of crisis. Some of them can't be avoided because nobody knew enough until the first time it happened. This one probably could have been avoided but um, now we're in it uh, so we have to deal with it and then part of again what makes it so uh, worse in this situation is we're having this in the crisis of a socialized uh, healthcare systems all around the world. Now there are going to need to be these kinds of decisions. There's one ventilator and three people who need it or, or 30 people who need it in some cases, and there's going to be triaging. And um, someone's going to have to make those decisions. It's going to fall on doctors to make it. Uh, And I know doctors are now thinking about how they're going to do that and maybe they can get committees in the hospital So it doesn't all fall on the shoulder of the one physician and so forth, but it's we're in a, a horrible time when this is going to happen What we want to avoid is Having a triage mentality run the whole country and run our whole lives So this is going to happen in hospitals with equipment and ventilators. It looks like we should do everything we can um to get more equipment so that it doesn't happen. And I think in this time, given that the government runs so many of these hospitals and has so many other roles, it's a big part of its job to, uh, it's it's part of its job now to supply money, funds, uh, to buy more medical equipment. Um, But uh, the, um, but the, uh, and we should try insofar as we can do it without triaging the rest of our lives, so to speak, to flatten curves so that we don't have the hospital systems overrun. But we want to avoid a situation where the triaging, the need to triage and the triaging mentality metastasizes from the couple of, uh, metastasizes from having to triage medical care to having to triage everybody's ability to grow, get an education, have a future. And um, I think there's insufficient attention being shown to that uh, when people dismiss um, the long-term risks to everybody's lives and well-being of continuing in a lockdown. So I think we really need, uh, what we ought to be putting pressure on political leaders for is a plan to get out of lockdown mode, a plan to get on with life. Not life exactly as though nothing happened, that can't be, but something where people can be returning to work and not a crazy, unrealistic Trump decides it's Easter and we all go back to work and everything's back normal at Easter no matter what. Um, The problem with that isn't that he wants a plan to get back to work, that he doesn't want a plan. He just wants to, uh, you know, um, say an edict and hope everything will come to the best. We want actual plans that have to do with this is what we're doing to, to... Build more hospitals. This is how the testing is going to run. It'll work differently in New York than in California, than in Wyoming, and so forth. And we should be, you know, asking for clarity on that from leadership. And that's what we have not gotten. And um, I think once we have that, that kind of clarity, which a clarity about who can do what and why, and why this is what we all need to protect our rights from the government, once we have as close to that as is possible from this government, then. People will be able to, uh, as individuals, as businesses, figure out ways to function for the duration of this, figure out plans, because you can't make any kind of long-term plan now. And some of that inability to long-term plan is just inherent in the nature of a disease that we don't know how it's going to go. But a lot of it is due to uncertainty that we don't know what policy, what principles our governments are acting on.
0: So, Maybe we can talk a little bit about the healthcare system and how decisions should be made in an individualistic society. What factors should be made by doctors, nurses, other professionals, and then how those decisions that should be made are changed or altered in a mixed system like we have today. How, are, how does government intervention change the, that calculus?
2: Well, are you thinking specifically with respect to health care? Specifically with healthcare, yes. So in a, a free society, healthcare would be private like any other good. It would be, you know, regular doctor's visits and so forth would be presumably funded by you'd pay for them like you pay for other normal goods, not by insurance. Maybe, you know, you'd buy packages from a certain doctor or hospital. There'd be the whole range of funding models for your regular health care that there are for all the other things you buy. Um, but not insurance. Insurance is something that's specifically um, a financial instrument for dealing with unexpected large costs, right? Um, and then there would, of course, be health insurance, uh, which base- essentially health insurance is illegal in America today, uh, as of Obamacare. Uh, if you have to treat pre-existing conditions and you can't opt out of it, then it's not insurance. It's, it's not a risk management tool in the same way anymore um where there would be medical insurance and people would know that they were responsible for their own care and in because of that there would be all kinds of different insurance models offered uh catering to different types of risk tolerances and of course there would be charities and pro bono hospitals and all kinds of things for the marginal marginal and i don't think there would be that many of them small group of people uh who uh you know, would not be willing or able to, to make provisions for themselves. But there would be a lot of decisions made in advance in the way these contracts are written and set. You would uh, choose a plan that uh, deprioritized you for various kinds of care after you reached a certain kind of age, or didn't even cover it after a certain kind of age, because like Emmanuel, you thought, you know, I don't want much care after I'm 75. Or, whereas somebody else would choose a plan that was very aggressive and cost more money, and someone else would choose a third thing, and some people would choose plans that would cover abortion and others that wouldn't cover abortion and that would cover contraception and would, it, you know, whatever the situation uh, might be. Um, and there would then be um, abilities to use all the kinds of resources and creativity in finance and financial markets and rich, risk management to uh, deal with these eventualities. It would be known that there could be runs and shortages uh, of various goods in uh, emergency times and then uh, written into the thinking or built into the thinking about this would be what to do about that and if some people had more foresight some companies had more foresight about it than others and so they got reserves or bought special rights to ventilators in certain kinds of conditions and so forth uh, they would be able to do that. And people who did not foresee that would not um, be sacrificed, they would not be sacrificed to other other uh, people who had different uh, views and goals. And as these kinds of, it became more and more clear what kinds of things were possible to happen, um, I think best practices would develop. And people would have the ability to, set risk, you know, their own risks and preferences, risk preferences uh, would be more taken into account. Um, That's how I think it would work on a free society. Now you could ask in a a case of really acute emergency, what would happen? And I think we could talk about that, but that's how I think the healthcare would run generally.
1: And I think part of your question, Paul, was thinking of it both, in a more free individualistic society and then thinking of the present um, and outside of an emergency context and it is it's the way we treat healthcare care is so different than other areas of life and it's important to get how different it is that because we think or more and more we've been taught to think there's a right to health care and that doesn't mean a right to plan for and prepare over your life how you're going to um, uh, pursue your physical health, how much money and time and so on you're going to devote to this. It's you're going to be provided with care, and you can go to an emergency room and you'll be treated. And all this is given so that it's and it's viewed as so free that means it's costless. It doesn't cost me anything, and you can't make decisions, individual decisions in that kind of system. So if you take, um, uh, if you if you, if you, thinking of the, the outrage that people are seeing, so it was uh, students on the beach in Fort Lauderdale and things like that, It part of the outrage comes from, so there's one, there's the issue of it's an infectious disease, so they can be infecting other people and that. But another is like, why should I pay, pay for the health care of a person who is completely disregarding all the medical advice? He's not doing any self-isolating, any self-distancing. Um, and it's that person will be treated the same as someone who, and if they go to the hospital, will be treated the same as someone who did try to. Do some preventive measures and none of that kind of individual decision making and of discrimination that you would say, no, I don't want to even insure someone like this. I don't want to treat someone like this. If this, if, and if a person's 85, it could be rational for them to say, it's, I know old people like this who will say, something's going to kill me and um, this might be what it is now. And you don't have to treat me if I get it. They can't make that kind of individual decision. So the, by putting it as it's run by the government and you have a right to this, it's you then have to make decisions across the board and you remove all individual decision-making. And there would be all kinds of differences in individual decision-making of insurance policies. So just as you have car insurance where they track if you're a good driver and give you discounts and so on. You'd have that kind of thing for health as well. And I mean, this disease, I mean, this for the coronavirus, it's if you have complications, you're much more vulnerable. Now, some of those complications are just through no actions of a person. But if you're a smoker or you're way overweight and a result of diabetes, these were things you could have done something about. and so. On and that you're gonna be treated now the same as someone who was healthy and going to the hospital um, and he's contracted this. It's, it's none of that kind of decision-making that would happen on a market happens in the healthcare system. And it is, it, it's really perverse that that doesn't happen.
0: So I'd like to switch from just my questions and questions I've been asking you directly to questions we've been getting on our various platforms from Zoom and Facebook, because we've been getting quite a few. Um, And one of the first things I think is worth bringing up, I know we touched on it a bit earlier, is government's role from the objectivist perspective in dealing with this kind of emergency. Uh, We have a question from Keith on Facebook about government's role, because it doesn't obviously A virus doesn't obviously fit into the traditional objectivist view of government's role being the military, the police, and the courts, because you can't go to war with, you can't arrest, and you can't sue a virus. So could you guys just highlight how handling this kind of situation fits in? And then we have an anonymous question that's related about what Ayn Rand said about the power of
2: government's power to quarantine. So what government basically does is polices people. And government has a role here in, a, in a, a perfectly, in a free government, government has a role that is one where the government's not antecedently involved in running medicine and so forth. Uh, it, it has a role here insofar as policing people has a role here. So if somebody is uh, known to have an infectious and deadly virus, it can uh, police his actions and not let him out of the house or not let him into contact with other people or uh, what What limits on his behavior are appropriate have to be worked out given the nature of the virus if someone's at high risk for having a virus uh, or at risk like you know we know the virus spreads a certain way, and if we contain people who had contact with Joe for a week, we'll know if they have it uh, If the virus is serious enough, and I think this is the case uh, it can uh request or you know demand. Uh, that those people stay in self-quarantine or could actually quarantine them in the sense of isolating them, locking them up somewhere for a period of time to see if they develop symptoms and thereby contain the disease. That's a kind of um, application of the police power to a medical case. What needs to be happened is that uh, people who are threats to other people's physical well-being because of their shedding viral particles, are being identified, that's tracking down, it's like what a detective does, it's just a medical version of it. And then they need to be held in place, their movements need to be controlled in order to keep other people safe from them, in this case from what they're non-voluntarily doing if they don't even know they have the virus, let's say. So I think that's broadly an application of the police power, but as it becomes um, complicated enough, and so forth, then it becomes a, um, you might need a special division, and you might need to be tracking uh, viruses in the population, or whatever, uh, um, to have a sense of when these kind of things are, are called for, and that's something like what the CDC does. Now, insofar as it's a threat of uh, things coming in from foreign countries, um, particularly if they're biological weapons, that's a military purpose, and then there are Areas of the government, I think, for example, we need an INS, an Immigration and Naturalization Service. Um, I think those things have to be understood as part of one process. There's an understanding of when can someone come and when can they naturalize, and it's not... We um, have to think about this as a, two parts of understanding the same process of people coming and taking residency in the country. But traditionally, quarantine has been... Um, you know, handled as part of screening travelers when they come in, particularly if they're immigrants. There's the old Ellis Island quarantine system that was used in uh, in the period when we had, you know, essentially open immigration, but there were, you know, people were tested for whether they had, you know, communicable diseases. Um, and I want
1: to say one thing about, the, uh, specifically about the infectious diseases. So. There have been, in, in this whole episode, many people bringing up the flu. And it's sometimes they've been attacked, and I think rightly so. If, it's, if they're saying with no reason and no evidence, they're not experts, this is just like the flu, in order to diminish its severity and the reality of what is going on. That, so that kind of comparison can be used uh, inappropriately. But it is part of the context to think about these kinds of things. And particularly for infectious disease, the flu is you, and it's different than some people bring up the deaths from car accidents and so on. That's not an infectious disease. The flu is. And you infect other people. And we don't think you quarantine everybody who has the flu. And it's true there's a vaccine, but the vaccine isn't anywhere close to 100%. People get the flu, and if you look, it's not insignificant the hospitalization rate for the flu and even the death rate for the flu. So this is an infectious disease that puts people in the hospital and kills some people. And yet we don't think everybody who has the flu has to be quarantined. And this is part of why it, this is a, it, there's a lot that goes into thinking about this issue and what the proper laws would be in regard to this. I think there's some infectious diseases that are below the bar that the government can say, you're such a threat that we're quarantining you. And there's some that will rise above that. And this is, I mean, this is potentially is, but this also is the reason I think the data is really important. There's a difference between the government doing things saying like this is a new disease and it's unknown, but it seems like it's such and such and so versus okay, we have enough data now to know, yeah, this is much more contagious than the flu and it's much more deadly, but then it has to be objective. What is that data that leads to that conclusion? And it says that this infectious disease is in a different category than the flu. And when that that data is neither collected nor communicated, so it's not objective to then start quarantining people. So in this case, I think it may be legitimate to do it, but you would actually have to present the data of what on what basis this is being done and it's not true that it's the moment someone has an infectious disease even if it can kill some people that it's okay you can quarantine them
2: i think it's also the 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 overwhelming of the hospital capacity i think is part of what matters in this issue in this case and particularly the pandemic nature of it so Suppose a vaccine for this is never found, or anyway, it's not found for some years. Um, well, then this is just going to become a much worse thing like the flu that's in circulation. That is, everybody will get it eventually. Uh, it will not, it'll become endemic in the human population, and every year it'll come around again. But, and every year when it comes around again, some percentage of people will die from it, maybe 1% who get it but we won't have this every year, because enough people will have it that it won't spread as quickly, and so it'll just be like, now part of the things you can get is the flu, which has a 0.1% chance of dying, and this thing, which has a 1 or 0.6, whatever it is, sense of dying, and that's horrible and awful, and hospitals will have to be more prepared during flu season than they normally would, but it won't be at the scale of what we're experiencing now, which is the thing is spreading really, really quickly and, and so forth. So it's uh, hopefully we'll get a vaccine and that won't happen and it'll just be uh, annihilated from the population and everyone will be safe. But even if we don't, it, if we don't, it'll eventually become part of the new normal that we have this disease and everybody will have to go back to living their lives and it'll just suck that now there's a disease you can get during the flu season that has a 1% chance of killing you. Whereas before there was only one that had a point one chance. And it will be just like, you know, 50 or a hundred years ago where there were more diseases like that. And that's life went on and life's normal. What's different about right now is that this thing is in a, in a period of special rapid spread. And the fact that it's in this period of special rapid spread means that it can, um, you know there's a chance to contain it uh not to contain it so that it doesn't get all over the place it seems but a chance to uh contain it so that we don't have a a case where there's hospital systems failure basically and um i think that justifies some extraordinary steps um i think what it mainly justifies is extraordinary steps to get our hospital systems one higher into capacity Two better testing, and three um, to get better decision procedures for how, what we're going to do in case of hospital overflows, including situations like when we—I uh, think—decant is the word they use—patients out to other hospitals, and when we how we move around equipment around the country and so forth. Um, but to have preparedness procedures, uh, and to have some extraordinary measures, including some mandated flattening the curve measures for delimited periods while we, um, while we work out how to deal with this. But that working out really has to be being done, and the scaling really has to be being done, and the development of testing to get us nearer to the Korean model really has to be being done. And there has to be a time scale to it, because we can't, uh, if it's going to be the case that half of the population is going to get this anyway, Um, and we know what the death toll is going to be from that, and it's horrific. Um, We can't, while that's happening for a year or more, um, have people not able to lead the rest of their lives. I think that will, longer term, lead to a larger cost than just the death toll, which it doesn't seem will be that much less anyway, as horrifying as it is. And I'll just mention, for anyone who's interested, Ayn
0: Rand does talk about quarantine in Ayn Rand's answers, best of her Q&A, and a little bit also in a new textbook of Americanism. So anybody who's interested in her
2: particular wording on that can look to those sources. Yeah, but I think she, when she talks about quarantines there, she's not envisioning a specific a pandemic kind of case and systems failure cases. Um, but yeah, I mean, what she says there is interesting, and she does talk about it, but it's not going to give you a kind of direct insight into what she would have made of a case like this. Um, and in this case, part of it is that the hospital failure and the, the, is that we're talking about a, a government run hospital system. Um, if it wasn't government run, I think there'd still be a real problem. I mean, it's a lot more than what's expected. Something's being private isn't magic and doesn't make it automatically anticipate every eventuality and deals with it. It just gives it the best chance of doing that and frees up the best people to, uh, invoke their efforts over time to, to make it as good as possible.
1: But it also wouldn't be, um, so for when it's run by the government, it's, if the government fails to anticipate it, it's the whole system has failed to anticipate it. And, and in a private market, it would be, and as we've talked about that, this was, there are people have been worrying about this for at least 15 years. So there would have been some people with more foresight or who just were more convinced about this, who were more prepared. So it, it's much less likely that you have a whole system that is unprepared. There would be some hospitals that are better prepared, some worse prepared. Um, no. It would have to be really that it's it wasn't foreseeable at all, that it is like system-wide that you're concerned that it's gonna collapse.
2: Well, it's worth really thinking about what would have happened in freedom, so in freedom here, because there are two kinds of, at one level, you could say this hospital on the one side of the street is well-prepared and this other hospital on the other side of the street is 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 worse prepared. Um, it's not clear that that's, I mean, that's probably already true now. Some hospitals have a little more ventilator capacity than others. Some have higher stocks of this or that than others. Um, but what I, I think the the real role of the market would be would there be people poised to, would there be somebody who had a large supply of ventilators that, um, and they had an investment model where like uh, these are here in case of pandemic and then he's able to sell them at very high cost now, but they're able to get out into the world. Or would there have been a situation where certain factories had um, plans for how they would transition to making, um, the people who who foresaw this what would they do uh if it was just a couple of hospitals who would have bought more equipment i don't think that would have been sufficient to deal with a crisis of this magnitude but it would be insurance companies right it would be insurance companies and it would be various um industries with mobilization plans in case of this and that's what i think we're missing so we have
0: another question from Stephen on Zoom about the government's role in addressing the cause of the disease. So from from what we know, this seems to originated somewhere in China in some sort of wet market selling wild animals. Does, should government have a role in regulating that to try and prevent this type of pandemic from happening?
1: I mean, I think it, um... It it would depend a lot on the specifics, uh, uh, the the specifics of the science and what is known. So I've read, yeah, that there people have been warning for a while that these kind of markets are they're like a laboratory for incubating new viruses because of the mixing, uh, the way the virus, viruses move from animal to animal, the mixing of the bloods. And, and other uh, fluids from the different animals. And so that, and you could, if, it, if there really is the science that this is a threat. So a person can be doing stuff in a private company, a private market that is objectively a threat. And you don't have to wait for the threat, the, the plant to exp- fertilizer plant to explode before something is done. So a threat means there's an objective reason for thinking this is reckless endangerment and therefore a threat to the other, a violation of the other people's rights and to step in. But it would depend a lot on what the actually is known about these food markets and so on, of like how much of a threat this is. And then yes, there would be that if if you're gonna have a market like this, here are some of the things that you have to do in order for it not to be a threat to, I mean, in this case, it's a breeding ground for a potential pandemic, it's a threat. Uh, It's a massive threat that you're thinking about. And so, but it's part of what it means for the government to function objectively is these things have to be shown. It's not like Trump, well, I have a hunch about this and I've got to guess about that. It has to actually be shown that this is a threat. But I think, yeah, if the the, part of what I read, there's at least reason for a government to be investigating and thinking about this and a legislator... legislature to be thinking about this, about, yeah, there really is a threat here that has to be addressed by law.
2: The, the analogy is that these, again, if it's true, I mean, we're not experts in, you know, microbiology or whatever, but the analogy is that these um, animal markets and particularly the way they're run is like a tinderbox. Well, you're not allowed, you know, there presumably are laws against keeping tinderboxes in certain places right, right by a whole lot of kindling. Um, there are laws that are, you know, doing some activity that has a great danger to set off a fire. There are laws in cities, for example, about how many wood, you know, wood, primarily wood buildings can be how close to one another. And that's not, I'm not talking about a whole building code, but you can't, you know, it can't be over a certain density or else we're at risk of a real fire burning down the city. And those kinds of laws uh, are are reasonable. You can't be the person who, uh, you know, rises it above a certain density of of, of of um dry wood structures next to each other. And if we're talking about um, practices that are like that, then there ought to be laws against, not necessarily the whole live animal markets, but laws about, you know, there has to be a certain distance kept between this and that. And that doesn't mean health food inspectors going around giving people certificates and something. It just means if somebody files a complaint that, you know, Um, Joe's live animal market is slaughtering bat uh, corpses over pools of blood that have snake corpses in them Uh, and we know that that's one of the things that is uh, really dangerous for uh, human transfer for viruses well then you know he gets a fine
0: we have another question from Tom on Zoom about people unintentionally infecting another person and whether or not that constitutes the initiation of force against that person. I mean,
1: yes, but it's the unintentional is relevant there. But I mean, if you unintentionally drive your car and hit someone who's cutting his grass, you lost control of your car and you, it's unintentional, but it's a violation of his right and it's a, you're using force. So the similarity is, you could have done it intentionally. Um, this, I'm sorry, the difference is you could have done it intentionally. Unintentionally. The similarity is the effects on him doesn't matter very much that it was intentional or unintentional. It matters to the whole court system to be thinking about this and what was the full nature of the action. But it is you've interfered with this person's life and property, and that is what the law should be thinking about. Um, so there's not some special case about infectious diseases that it's unintentional. Um, there's all kinds of things that happen unintentionally, but you're still trespassing on somebody's rights.
2: Yeah, and he would still be in his right to use force to stop that if he could. What he wouldn't be within his rights to do is use force to retaliate. Uh, and now the government, likewise, is in its right to use or is, is right to use force to prevent but not to retaliate. And also use force to recompense because, you know, you accidentally drove your car onto my lawn and you've um, harmed me. Uh, I can sue you. And, uh, and that's right that I should be able to sue you. It's your action that had this result um, and uh, I'm, I should, you know, I'm due recompense from you. But not punitive damages that I would be due if you, you know, were out to get me and not criminal prosecution of you.
1: I noticed in the chat someone asking it would, that these are going into issues of law, philosophy of law, that it would be interesting to hear uh, people with real expertise in that. Yeah, we're planning in the not in the near future to have a, another webinar while we have a couple of legal experts on to talk about the current pandemic. Um, so that's a plug for what is to come.
2: One thing to think about is it's, you know, it's easy and, and people who, who favor limited government tend to think everything should be handled through court or, or there's a tendency to want to handle things through courts. And there's a lot of wisdom in in court precedents over how to deal with various cases of unintentional injury and so forth. And, uh, uh, you know, we ought to be talking about that and, and those are certainly relevant, but it's also, you know, there is a role for legislative law here too Once it's known that a type of action could have a type of consequence, you don't have to sue afresh every time someone does it. We pass statutory laws against it, and that's proper. There's a role for a legislature to do that in a free society. We need legislatures. And often what legislatures do or have done is incorporate big swaths of common law, that is, things that have been decided through judicial findings, and they just say, well, now this is actual statutory law.
0: We have another question from Ricardo on zoom about your thoughts on government shutting down parts of the economy now and in the future. And I'd be curious to know if you have any specific thoughts on, on what those things should be for, for a disease.
1: Um, So I'm the, for this kind of question, I think the, First thing to say that's important to say, it is it's an extraordinary circumstance to shut down parts of the economy. And it is, and and in this case that we've been talking about, it's I think it's as a it's a lack of action that has brought to that that one's even thinking about this. And I don't know if you can go back three weeks, there wasn't even it wasn't even on the table, we're gonna shut down parts of the economy um, that we won't need to do something like what happened in Wuhan or then what Italy started to do. And And we moved way too quickly, I think, from you can do it voluntarily, so it's voluntarily social distancing and other measures, to we're locking down the economy. And one of the intermediary steps is there we have a profile of who's vulnerable to this, and it was they particularly need to do social distancing, and everyone who interacts with them has to take really seriously if you're interacting with a seventy five year old maybe reduce your interactions or eliminate it completely. think of ways that you talk to them on the phone instead of going to visit them uh, at their home or in in uh, an assisted living facility and things like that but if then you really thought that okay, it's um, the voluntary measures don't work. To go to coercive measures, it's not the last thing that you would do is coercive measures that um, have enormous economic impact. So possibilities here, I mean, when they talked about the UK, that there was first the UK seemed like the strategy was uh, we're gonna cocoon the more vulnerable, the elderly, the people with who have complicating conditions for if they get uh, the uh, coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, it's, you could have locked down them. And when we're, you're thinking about the load on the hospital system, you could, if you thought it had to be coercive, that that would be the first place that I would not, it's we're gonna stop um, economic activity and if you're thinking of it, it's it's 70 year old plus now some of these people work but locking them in has such a lower um, impact on the economy than telling business every business or whole swaths of businesses that you have to close down so it so this is such a drastic measure that to then ask well what okay if you do this it's when you're doing it it's destruction. And there's no good, it's it's massive destruction. And the idea that the government can pay people, the government doesn't have any money. The government just takes money from people and gives it to others. So there is a real argument that for the the, the kinds of companies that can't do much to mitigate the lockdown, that they're particularly, they need some kind of bailout and so on. But it's not like what the government's just sitting on this whole stack of things, and it and can who is they going to give it to it's by locking down we've destroyed an enormous amount of production and wealth, and it's gone like you know, there's, there's nothing you can do to get it back so th- this is part of why it's such a drastic issue there yeah so I think yeah, there are arguments for the the places that are so affected by this. the government has to do something economically, but do, it's not like we're getting back to zero or those companies are getting back to zero. When the government does this, it it's destroying a massive amount of production and the outside of war, um, the need to do this, like you can imagine a pandemic that would re- have required this, but I don't think this was the one that required.
2: It Also depends on what the exit strategy is. So if it was a week from now, everybody will, if, if the situation was, a week from now, everybody will go back to work and the curve will have been sufficiently flattened from that, that, you know, there will still be deaths and it'll still be a lot bad about this virus, but there won't be the kind of hospital overruns that people were fearing and that we see in in Italy and so forth. Um, I think that would be justified probably. But if it's six months from now, three months from now, two months from now, we have no idea how many months from now and nobody can plan, that's a different story. And um, so, I mean, you really have to think about what are the timescales here? Uh, these kinds of measures, you know, what's it, emergencies can't last for very long and still be emergencies. If they're very long, they're just the new reality of life. And um, that's, that's part of the worry here. And the other issue is, again, this is... A result of there was a need to do more whether by private companies or public earlier to prepare for this and it's because oh so that's the other point i want to make it's suppose the government wasn't locking down um then it's not all the government's fault but there's this tremendous uh lack of, of production a lot of people are dying a lot of hospitals are overrun a lot of businesses will quite reasonably uh, even if there wasn't a coordinated lockdown policy, just decide we don't want our people coming in now. We want to keep them, we want them to be at home and it'll keep them safer. But they're going to lose a lot of productivity, uh, production doing that. And then a lot of businesses will coordinate with others to do it. So we're in a kind of calamity where a lot of wealth is being destroyed. And that wealth being destroyed is not something other than people dying. It's how people live and enjoy their lives, is through producing, creating, trading things. And when that's shut down, that's another form of people dying. It's another form of people's lives being constricted. It'll literally kill some people. It will diminish everybody's quality of life. And diminutions of quality of life sustained over time leads to losses of life in in innumerable different ways. And we don't know how to measure and trace all of them, but we know that that's true. So it's very hard to quantify how much of the damage is being done by the virus itself, how much of it is being done by the economic consequences. Uh, those economic consequences are in part through the government handling it wrong, but some of them are just you know, facts that are gonna follow from there being a, a pandemic like this. And it's also, we should note, not just America, right? Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of bad has happened already, even to us in America, because of the effects of the virus just within China, right? That created major uh, economic problems and loss, losses of production and, and, of course, all the lives that were lost there. But they're not, because we're an interconnected, globalized world, it should be, that um, when things go badly for the Chinese, they go badly for us. And if this pandemic becomes a huge thing and sweeps India and kills a lot of people there or Italy or France or any, anywhere else, it's going to have effects on us, uh, even if our government plays all its cards right. Uh, it's, um, part of what's metaphysically given about these things is that um, you know disease is bad, and it causes, uh, it causes all kinds of follow-on losses, particularly pandemic diseases. And that's part of the context in which we all needed to be more prepared. We needed to be more prepared as a society than we were for this. Um, Oh, that goes back to the issue of China. I mean, we talked about what China should do and should have done and should they ban these markets. The other thing that China deserves blame for is for lying about and hiding and covering up this thing earlier. Perhaps it could have been contained if it were treated properly from the first. If not, everybody could have been more prepared for it. Uh, Our government certainly deserves a lot of blame for not only not being better prepared for pandemics over the course of decades when they've been being warned about it, but particularly the current administration uh, evading it.
1: And it's also their attitude towards China. So part of what I, from what I've read about the Asian countries is they really and rightly distrust China. So the first that there were stories coming out of this, when I've read about a little bit about Taiwan, how quickly they reacted. And I think part of the reaction is um, an understanding of the Chinese government that our president under administration doesn't have, or at least does not project publicly, that there seemed like something was happening already in November. and But the propaganda coming out of the Chinese government is no, nothing's happening. And they didn't take that seriously. Um, and that's important to how fast they reacted.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a general foreign policy thing. But the idea that Trump is somehow hard or tough on China is a joke. He's probably the least hard or tough on China in the ways that matter of any of the administrations we've had certainly recently, They've, none of them have been great, but um, this idea that we're, and, and you can see that it, I don't think it's an accident that China's been getting aggressively more totalitarian and flexing its muscle more uh, under this president than they have under previous ones, because he's made it known that all he cares about um, with respect to them, is uh, finagling a few cents tariff here and there different. And so then everything becomes negotiable in terms of that. And there's no principle, there's no human rights guiding our thinking about dealing with countries and no um, concern about um, you know, honesty and decency in these kinds of issues.
0: Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Ankar. This has been a really great conversation. I think people have found it valuable. I do just want to point out, as Ankar mentioned, that we do have another episode scheduled for Saturday, the 28th of March at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's called The Pandemic and Legal Issues, where Elon Giorno will be speaking with Larry Salzman and Steve Simpson from the Pacific Legal Foundation. So if you're interested in those issues, please tune in then to see this. Greg, Ankar, thanks again. Thank thanks,
1: you. Paul. Thanks, everyone, for joining.